Watts uh, wrote that, Isaac Watts. Um, the tune was written by a lady who uh, dedicated the tune in honor of uh, one of her students that she knew. In fact, I was in a seminary with uh, this student. He was from Russia, and he had lived uh, there for a number of years, come to Christ, and had come to the States to study theology. His name was Sasha, and a uh, bright guy. And um, he studied theology, and uh, the lady that wrote that tune, her name's Joan Pinkston, she dedicated that tune in honor of Sasha. She would often go to the Eastern Bloc countries and minister there, and uh, she'd met him over there and his family, and they had a close relationship. And so when I hear that tune, How Sad Our State, it kind of has a little Russian flavor to me, right? And I think she actually brought that out a little bit when you sing that. It kind of sounds that way a little bit. And so now you know. Now you know why, and, uh, but uh, definitely a great, great text and appropriate tune, I think, that uh, we sing to that. Just a, a couple of things that I want to reiterate. I know we've already had announcements, and nobody likes announcements, but um, you might need to be aware of these. Uh, we voted a while back as a church to appropriate some funds for a new door security system, and uh, many of you have asked about that. That has been installed and just so you know, the doors lock and unlock kind of on a schedule now. Um, and if you have a key, which I know probably all of you do, right, uh, that key still works right now. Uh, in the future, we will be changing those locks, and your key won't work. But before that happens, we'll warn you, okay? We're not just going to have you show up and not be able to get into the building. And then uh, when you need access to the building, we'll have a, a way for you to access the building uh, probably a card that you have that will work like a key. You hold it up to the door and it'll unlock for you. And it's just a way for us to have better uh, security on the building and um, kind of know who's coming and going and uh, be able to uh, manage that. Right now, uh, we really have no idea who's coming and going in here, and that's fine. We haven't had any issues or any problems, but um, uh, we will educate you on that and let you know uh, when the time comes and we make that change over. The other thing I want to introduce to you, and I'm uh, really excited about this, is we are beginning a, a church library. Uh, it's a lending library. Uh, Emily Cornelius is, uh, is heading this up, and uh, we already have several books available if you would like to check them out of the lending church library. It's in the reception room. That's the little room right off the lobby there. And as soon as you walk in under the TV there, there's some bookshelves. There's a uh, plaque kind of thing there that you can read, and it'll tell you exactly how you can check a book out of the library. And uh, the duration of time that you can have it. Um, we have just a few books there now. Maybe you have some books that you would like to lend to the church library or even donate to the church. That's fine. I don't promise that we'll put all of them out. We kind of vet those books and... Um, Make sure that we're familiar with them. Of course, we put the disclaimer in every book, right? Uh, we don't agree with everything this author has to say, but uh, most of it is good. Uh, but some, some books we, we just wouldn't want out there for obvious reasons. And so um, if you have some books, you can see Emily about that. We're really trying to focus initially. We don't have a lot of space. So we're trying to focus initially in the areas of uh, Christian biography and really Christian living kind of books. And uh, so if you bring us your Strong's Concordance, we're probably not going to put it out there, or your um, 
Nidoti set. And you don't know what that is unless probably you're a theologian, right? So uh, this is a huge volume of stuff. If you bring that out and put that, we're not going to use that, okay? Uh, so we're kind of focusing on Christian biography, Christian living, um, and so that's where we are with that. But you can start using that as of tonight. And if you have anything you'd like to, to donate that way, see Emily. And we can certainly add it to the library and make that available. And it's, it's good for you to have good things to read and uh, good things to fill your mind with. And so we want to promote that and make that as easy as possible for you. You don't even have to spend money. Uh, you just loan it. Uh, it's on loan for a month. And uh, you manage it that way. Okay, so that's our library. Lord willing, that will grow. We'll have other options uh, as time goes along. Okay? All right, tonight I'd like you to take your Bibles and please open with me to the book of Job. Job. And when I tell you or ask you to turn to the book of Job, where does your mind go? What do you think of? Give it to me in a word. Difficulty, suffering, tragedy, trial. And there's a reason for that. Uh, mostly the reason is uh, there was a lot of tragedy and, and suffering that happened uh, in this book that's recorded for us. Um, but I think a lot of times we, we misunderstand what is the real message uh, of this Old Testament book. And so tonight I'd like to, to look at that with you this evening and I think it will be encouraging uh, for all of us. What is God teaching us through the book of Job? Why would God preserve this and have it in the Bible? What really is the message in these 42 chapters? Uh, some people would come and say, well, the book of Job is there to tell us or teach us why we suffer. That suffering obviously happens here. There's a tragic event in this book teaches us why that happens. Is that the case? Why do we draw that kind of conclusion? Well, let's just look at uh, a little bit of the book together. All right, you're in Job chapter 1. And uh, I want us to note, first of all, just, just the way that this book is laid out, kind of the structure of it. In, in chapter 1, you have the opening... And there's an opening narrative, chapters 1 and 2, right? If you look to the end of chapter 2, you have the narrative section that's done, and chapter 3 begins kind of a poetic section. The first five verses of chapter 1 tell us about Job's character. What kind of man is Job? Well, verse 1, he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And that's an accurate assessment because if you look down in verse 8, the Lord actually mentions that same thing to Satan and says, there's no one like Job. He's a blameless man, upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. So that's an accurate assessment of this man. In verses 6, uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, and running all the way down to chapter 2 and verse 10, we read of Job's calamities. What happened to him? He loses his material wealth, he loses his family, he loses his own physical health, uh, suffer these great calamities. And then in chapter 2 and verse 11, and running through the end of the chapter, you have Job's comforters. Uh, these friends of his that come and, and try to help him in his time of difficulty and turmoil. So you have the first two chapters of Job that open, and they're what we call 
narrative or prose. And as I said, that's easily seen. If you have an ESV version of the Bible, it's, it's, the typesetting is different. You see how when you get to chapter 3, it's different? Because it's a different genre. So chapters 1 and 2 are prose or narrative. And narrative, when you read narrative, you're typically giving facts. You're telling a story. This happened, and this person went there, and they said this, and here's what happened, and it's facts that you're given. Well, look at how the book closes. Go to chapter 42. Chapter 42, verse 7, again, you have what we call narrative or prose. The typesetting's different, even from verse 6 of chapter 42. And here you have in 42, verses 7 through 9, God uh, rebukes these three friends that tried to comfort Job. And in chapter 42, verses 10 to 17, now God restores Job's position. And he actually gives him double from what he began with. So, so the structure of Job, in the opening you have this narrative, the first two chapters, there's a closing narrative, and those are all the facts. Now, when you think of the book of Job, or you tell it in Sunday school, that's what you focus on, right? Here's what happened to Job, here's who he is, here's what happened, his friends did something, and then you run right to the end, but God gave everything back to him. Well, if this is all we had about the book of Job, what might you conclude about suffering? Maybe it would be that God allows suffering in order to give me back twice as much as I had to begin with. Right? I mean, that's, that's what we're reading in the narrative. And that's kind of what it looks like. Is that why people suffer? Is that the right assessment? Well, here's the trouble. If you base your assessment of Job just on the narrative portions, the prose or narrative sections of Job account for only 5% of the book. So you're going to take 5% of the book and you're going to draw from that the conclusion of the whole book. No one would think that is wise. So what is the other 95% of the book? It's not narration and prose, but it's what? It's poetry. And the poetry section of Job is 95% of the book. 83% of that is dialogue between Job and his friends. And 12% is monologue. It's where God is just talking to Job. Now, when you move from prose or narration that kind of tells the story here's what happened and this person said this and here's the facts and you move to poetry what does poetry do poetry kind of conveys the inner makeup of a person with regard to those facts how do they see that how do they feel about that what emotions are they experiencing because of that And so, really to conclude that the book of Job is simply about why we suffer and giving this factual formula, we suffer because of X, 
is wrong, and I think it puts the emphasis in the wrong place. In fact, the book of Job, we read about suffering, but suffering isn't the main thing. Suffering is a catalyst. You know what a catalyst is? I forgot to ask my wife about this, so I hope I'm not wrong about this, okay? You can tell me later, honey, if I'm wrong, okay? Uh, A catalyst in uh, chemistry is something that can speed up a reaction, but in itself is not diminished. So you want chemicals or, or whatever to, to react together, and you add a catalyst that speeds up that reaction, but the catalyst doesn't go away. It's not, it's not losing anything. It's just making that happen faster. Um, for instance, you, you drove here tonight in a vehicle. Did you know that your vehicle has a catalytic converter? You hear the word? Okay. How many of you know what that is, right? A catalytic converter. You might know it because it's the thing that thieves like to steal off your car. Uh, they, they cut the pipe and they take that thing right out. You know why? Because there's, there's valuable uh, material in a catalytic converter. There's, there's, a, there's a precious kind of metal. It's platinum. And they put platinum in a catalytic converter because what the platinum does is when your car has an exhaust and it's these hydrocarbons and they come out as, as carbon monoxide, which is deadly to human beings, when it passes through that platinum in that converter, that creates a catalyst, the platinum does, and it turns it into carbon dioxide, which actually trees take in and... They say is good in some regard. Okay, that's that's a catalyst. That's something added that speeds up that reaction. So when it comes out, it's it's mostly carbon dioxide, and it, it helps the process that way. Okay, doesn't remove it all, but but a good deal of it. Well, in the book of Job, suffering is a catalyst. Here you have a man who fears God, and the Lord Himself. And friends that this man has, and you introduce into this relationship suffering. And what does it create? What does it speed up or stimulate? What is the reaction? Well, let me just ask you, when you suffer, what is the reaction? When you grieve. When you feel pain, when you're in trouble. When when we suffer in these kinds of ways, we want to talk about our suffering. Why is this happening? What good could this possibly be? Did I do something to deserve this? How is this going to end? We want to talk about our suffering. We look for answers. And when you read the poetry section of the book of Job, that's what you have is talking. And people are talking to each other. But primarily, people are talking about and to God. For instance, look at chapter 9. 
Chapter 3 opens with a few speeches from Job's friends. In chapter 9, Job replies. We're told, Then Job answered and said, 9-1, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? And he goes on, and Job talks in chapters 9 and, verse, in chapters 9 and 10, and in those 57 verses, 70 times Job mentions God. Not just his name, but also in, in pronouns. But 70 times in 57 verses he says he, referring to God. And he's talking about while he's suffering, here's what I know about God. And he's trying to figure this out. And so in response to that, look at chapter 11. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, and he goes on talking, and in the 20 verses of this chapter, the 11th chapter, 12 times he talks about God. And he mentions God by name or by pronoun. And so he answers, well, I think God is like this, or, or, or here's how we need to think about this. Look at chapter 12. In chapter 12, Job answers again in reply, and again in chapters 12 through 14, now you have 75 verses and 69 times God is mentioned, by name or by pronoun. And so you can see that, that what's going on in this time of suffering is a lot of talking about God and trying to, to figure out what the real important things are in life. Now here's what that tells me. You know, sometimes God has to take us to drastic measures to get us to even think about Him or talk about Him. And suffering is a catalyst for that. I've never walked into the hospital room of somebody who is dying and the first question people ask me is about the weather. They want to know what's going on. What does God say about this? There's nothing like suffering that makes us seek after talk about, inquire of God, right? If anything, suffering ought to help us move away from our own egocentricity. Suffering gets our eyes off of ourselves so much to look outside of ourselves at someone bigger than ourselves to ask questions of him. And God uses suffering in that way. For those of you who are old enough, it's been 22 years now since 9-11. Do you remember what happened in the days immediately after that horrific event? People flooded to churches. Why? people that hadn't thought about God in years. Why? Because faced with trial and tragedy, 
suddenly it's on the top of everybody's mind and they need to know what does this mean? How is this going to end? These big questions in life. And so suffering in the book of Job serves as a catalyst that initiates this relational interaction between God and Job and even Job's friends, just like it does for us. So what is the message of this book? The book of Job is not about why God's people suffer. The vast majority of the book reveals God's people, reveals people's response to suffering and a man's relationship to God while he suffers. You see, suffering's the setting of the book. We always think of suffering in Job, but that's just the setting. It's the response to that that really is the emphasis. It's what people are saying about that and what conclusions they're drawing from that. And that's what we find in the poetical sections of the book. So that begs the question, well, what are we to learn about God through suffering? If suffering is this thing that kind of brings the important things to the surface, at those times, what are we to realize? What do we need to know? And I want to begin just by noting through Job's friends, their conversation, we get a better picture of suffering. And what I mean by that, it's not because of how right they are with what they say, but how wrong they are with what they say. I think from Job's friends' perspective, we often look at it like they do from their perspective. And what were they concluding about suffering? Well, look at these guys and what they had to say. Look at chapter 4. There's a guy named Eliphaz, the Temanite. All right, young people, uh, can you say that? That's a funny name, Eliphaz. Can you say that? Eliphaz. It almost sounds like elephant, but it's not. And it's not elephants and termites. It's Eliphaz the Temanite, okay? And look at what he says about suffering. Eliphaz, chapter 4, look at verse 7. He says to Job, remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. What is Eliphaz's conclusion about suffering? His conclusion is this nobody suffers except that they personally deserve that. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? Verse 7, the end, where were the upright cut off? The upright don't suffer like this, so it must mean that there's a problem with your not being upright. Verse 8, those that plow iniquity sow trouble and reap the same. Job, you've experienced such hardship. Certainly there's some personal, individual sin that God is punishing you for. That's not simply his assessment. Look at chapter 8. Job chapter 8. Here's another funny name for young people, right? Chapter 8, verse 1. 
then Bildad the Shuhite. By the way, there's the shortest man in the Bible. Okay? You get that? Bildad the Shuhite. Okay? It's okay to laugh. I'm just making sure you're with me. Okay? But look at what he says in verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Now, how's that for comfort? Job has lost all of his children, and he says, if your children have sinned against God, he's just delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Great friend, right? What's his assessment? They must have been personally evil in some way to suffer like this. Look at this third friend. Look at chapter 11, Zophar. No, Zophar the Naamathite. Okay? You got that with me, young people? We have Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Okay, if you get a cat, you can name it one of those names, all right? <laughs> Zophar. Look at what he says. Look at verse 14. He says, If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. You see what he's saying? He's saying, verse 14, Job, you've not done what is just. Certainly you are in iniquity. Let it pass from you. That's why you're suffering in this way. Turn away from it. And this is their conclusion. Now, hold that thought a minute about those three guys in particular, because did you know there's a fourth friend in the book of Job? We don't usually hear a lot about him. He doesn't get a lot of publicity. Uh, but very interesting character. And I want you to look at him. Look at chapter 32. This is kind of an aside, but I just wanted you to be familiar with this. We have a fourth friend. His name is Elihu. And Elihu is kind of sitting back up to this point. We're, we're chapter 32. There's only 10 chapters left. And most of that's God speaking. And Elihu has been sitting in the background listening to what's going on. He's been listening to these older men, older than him, counsel Job in this way. But notice what Elihu says. Chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Job kept saying, I've done nothing wrong. This is not because of personal, individual sin. Verse 2. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. 
Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Who is this guy? We know he's a young guy, and a lot of commentators treat Elihu as this is just that cocky young kid that comes in half-cocked and just wants to rant about everything. You're all wrong. You're old and don't understand. But here's what's very interesting. Notice it says, Elihu burned with anger, verse 2. He burned with anger at the three, uh, and also at Job, verse 2, because he justified himself rather than God. All right, go to chapter 40. And the Lord is speaking to Job in, in, in chapter 40. And look at what God says in chapter 40 and verse 8. God says to Job, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That's exactly what Elihu was saying. He was angry with Job because Job was saying, I'm right. I'm righteous. I don't deserve this. And God is actually agreeing with Elihu. Here's another thing. Look at this. Go back to Job 32. Look at verse 3. We're also told of Elihu that he burned with anger also at Job's three friends. Not just Job, but Job's three friends. Why them? Because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. They didn't find the answer, but they kept saying that Job is wrong. Now go to chapter 42. And look at verse 7. We're told, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Again, that's the exact same reaction Elihu had in chapter 32. I think Elihu was onto something. He maybe didn't go about it in a right way, but even when it says he burned with anger, was that not God's response as well? We just read in 42. That's a side note, okay? You can study that out yourself, but I think Elihu's actually a good guy. Let's go back to these three friends. What is their conclusion about suffering? You've entered the catalyst, you've put it into the mix, it creates this this discussion and talk about God, and what are they saying about God? Here is their conclusion. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they say God is a strict judge, and all suffering is a result of individual sin. Therefore, Job, repent and be delivered from this judgment. This is their conclusion. Now, I want to ask you, is that accurate? Is all, be careful, this is a trick question, is all suffering a result of sin? Yes. Because before the fall, there was no suffering. 
And when God redeems us in the new creation, there will be no suffering. All suffering in a sin-cursed world is a result of sin, original sin, of which we're all culpable, being in Adam when he sinned. However, is all specific, devastating suffering a result of specific individual sin? Well, what do you make of this? Look at John chapter 9, the Gospel of John in the ninth chapter. This was kind of the common understanding of the day that, that somebody that, that dies or, or somebody that suffers in an extreme way, they must be an extreme sinner. It, it must be a result of their specific heinous sin or crime against God. And this was the common understanding among the day, even in Jesus' day. And that's why we read what we do in John chapter 9, verse 1. We're told of Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, suffering. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What's their estimation of the suffering? This man or his parents must be a uniquely wicked sinner because this is an extreme kind of suffering. Verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus says, it's not a result of specific individual sin. This actually came about that something would be known about God through him. We also read of this, look at Luke chapter 13. Luke 13 and look at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It was a great slaughter that Pilate had enacted upon these Galilean worshipers. Verse 2, and Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? There's our question, right? Were these just notorious sinners? That's why they they suffer so egregiously this way? Verse 3, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And what Jesus is pointing to is, it wasn't that they were just worse sinners. Everybody's a sinner. That's why unless you repent, you'll perish. But you cannot equate this extreme suffering with extreme sin. And we do this sometimes. Whenever a hurricane hits a particular sector of the world or of the United States, we say, well, they must have been really wicked people. That's why that happened. No. You can't make that conclusion. We live in a sin-cursed world, and all suffering is a result of sin But not all suffering is a result of individual specific sin. 
In fact, God corrects this with Job's three friends. Go back to Job and look at chapter 42. We read this before, 42.7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. You have not spoken of me what is right. Those conclusions that we read, they were not right conclusions. And God makes that plain. So, through Job's friends, we get a better picture of suffering. What is that picture? We shouldn't be equating individual specific sin with egregious suffering. So what are we to conclude? What is the right thing? What is the right way to think about suffering? Well, it's through Job that we learn a mature response to suffering. A mature response. And what does that look like? Well, go back to chapter 1. Job chapter 1. And after Job experiences this great loss, beginning in verse 6, we're told about the episode of of Satan in heaven and and God saying, have you considered my servant Job? And we're told of what happens beginning in verse 13 when it's like one after another amazing tragedy happens to this man. Look at Job's response in verse 20. Chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and what? Worship. Two things I want you to note here. Job grieved. I mean, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. Visible, physical grief. And he wasn't wrong. It was absolutely right for him to grieve and grieve greatly. Don't be so pious that you keep a stiff upper lip and say, I can't grieve because then I'm not trusting God. That is not true. Job grieved. And you should grieve. We should all grieve when we suffer because it is an effect of sin. But he didn't stay in his grief. Because what did he do at the end of verse 20? What did he do at the end of verse 20? He worshiped. What do you mean he worshiped? Praising and thanking God? No, here's what he did when he worshiped. Verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave... The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What do we learn through this conclusion of Job, of, of what he says here? We learn this. Job says, I will reverently worship God with or without reward because he is worthy. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, 
Well, Job didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve this kind of suffering. I mean, he didn't deserve this kind of tragedy. Well, let me ask you, did Job deserve all the blessing he had? Did Job have all that from the Lord just because he was a good guy? And this is Job's point. He realizes that God gives, God takes away, it's up to him. Blessed be his name. I will reverently worship God with or without reward because God is worthy. Here's the other thing that Job notes. Look at chapter 42. Now you come to the end and, and read of his conclusions. Oops, I'm in Psalms. Job 42. Verse 2. Verse 1, Job 42. One. Then Job answered the Lord. So, so here's, here's what's going on. The, remember I said there's monologue in here? And if you go back in chapter 38, uh, the people have been talking, Job and his friends, back and forth. You come to chapter 38, and now all the dialogue stops, and God starts talking. And he takes Job aside, and he just asks him question after question after question. And what God is doing is he's trying to, to adjust Job's focus. Get him to think a little bit deeper about what's going on. And after all of that questioning, chapter 42, verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What's he saying about God there? You, you can do anything. Because this is what God has said. He says, Job, do you know where the, the goat calf goes to, goes to have their kids? Do you know where I keep these treasures of snow that I pour out on the earth sometimes? And he's just saying, Job, have you figured these things out? Are you the one running this show? And so... What, would you, what word would you describe this that, that Job is acknowledging? I know that God can do all things. No purpose of his can be thwarted. What would you call that? God is sovereign. He's in control. He's the one that, that does things and allows things, and this is all in his hand. And now look at verse 3. Job says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now, in your, in your Bible, in your ESV, there are quotation marks around that. It's just one quotation mark because it's in the quotation of Job. So you have Job speaking in verse 2, and when he comes to verse 3, you have this one, it kind of looks like an apostrophe, because Job is quoting from somewhere else. Who is Job quoting when he says this? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Well, look at chapter 42. I mean, I'm sorry, look at chapter 38. Remember I said this is the beginning of God's monologue to Job, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, verse 2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is Job quoting at the end? He's quoting God. 
And here's how that quotation fits in. Again, go back to 42.3. Job says, you are sovereign, verse 2. And you've asked me this question, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And what Job is saying is, that's me. I thought I had this figured out. I really don't. I'm actually hiding counsel because I don't have the knowledge. God, you asked me this question, and you're right, that's me. Verse 3, the middle, therefore, Job says, this is not the quote now, it's his own words, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. What is Job saying by this? He's saying, look, God, I am not smart enough to run this world. You are. Therefore, I submit to your wisdom. Maybe I can't explain it. I don't know why. But here's what I know. You're a lot smarter than I am. And here's what Job is saying. I will submit to God with or without understanding because he is sovereign and good. And is that not really the test of true submission? When I agree with something and I understand it and then I arrange myself under it, I'm not submitting, I'm agreeing. It's when I don't understand. And it doesn't make sense to me that I arrange myself under that. That's submission. And that's worship. This is a mature response to suffering. I'll submit to God, even if I don't understand it. There's a final thing that Job does. Here in chapter 42, look at verse 4. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Do you see those quotation marks again? Looks like an apostrophe. You see that beginning of verse 4? And there in the middle of verse 4, this whole phrase, Hear, and I will speak. I will question, and you make it known to me. Job is quoting again. These are his words, but he's quoting. Again, who is he quoting? Go back to chapter 38. Um, verse 42, 4 says, Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Look at 38, 3. Dress for action like a man, God says to Job. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So you can see that Job is once again quoting God, and this time God is saying, Job, stand up. I'm going to now ask you some questions and see if you can figure this out. And all of that was to demonstrate to Job that he is not God, okay? And so he goes on this whole thing about speaking about different things and, and asking Job all these questions that he can't answer. Go back to 42.4. Job now is picking up on that. 
Here's what you said to me, God. Here I will speak. I will question you. You make it known to me. And here's Job's response, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Let me ask you, which of those is better? Just hearing about something or seeing it? That's the idea of what is going on here. Job is saying, God, I'd heard about you secondhand. I heard these stories about who you are. I kind of thought I had it figured out. But now, through suffering, it's like we've gone to a different level. Now I see who you are. I, I, I understand on a, on a different level who you are. Verse 6, Therefore, because I've come to this through suffering, I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. What Job is expressing at this point is an absolute trust in God. God, I'd heard about you before, but now the relationship because of the suffering has grown so strong and increased my trust. I see who you are. And I'm at this entirely different level of confidence in you. And what Job is saying is, I will trust God with or without evidence because he has spoken. These are the things that he says. And I've come to that experientially. Now, friends, is it not true that that from birth we are mistrusting kind of people? Right? Think about your children. And when you were a child, and you tell your child, don't play in the street. Remember as a kid thinking, I wonder what's in that street that they're trying to keep away from me. I wonder what's out there that maybe might be better, right? This, this kind of mistrust of those even that God puts over us is inherent in us. And it stems back to the fall. And what Job is saying is through this suffering, all of that has been stripped away and I've been humbled. God, I thought I trusted you with the hearing of the ear, but you've just kind of blown the lid off that. I see who you are. And now I I trust you implicitly, even without evidence just because you you say, here's who you are. And these are the conclusions. This is what we learn through Job. This is a mature response when we suffer. So what should we do when we suffer? A right response when suffering includes worship, submission, and trust in God. Worship, submission, and trust in Him. Why? Well, 
That kind of response brings peace to the believer. It's likely you can't do anything about your suffering anyway. Whenever we suffer, we always want to figure it out. How do I fix this? And the thing that makes it suffering is you can't fix it. And you have to trust somebody else that it's in their hands. And when we get to that point, it really does bring us a settled kind of peace in our heart. I know who's in charge of this, and I can trust them with it. This response also baffles and it testifies to unbelievers. Don't you ever experience that? You go through a difficulty and a trial and people who don't know the Lord look at you like you have two heads and say, how can you be so calm about this? How can you be at ease about this? And it's this kind of mature response that gives that testimony that my confidence is in someone much greater than myself. Thirdly, how about this? This response instructs who? Say, that's weird. Why did you put that in there? Well, remember what we read in chapter 1? What we get in chapter 1 is God pulls back the curtain a little bit and says, okay, here's what Job was experiencing, but here's the big picture. God says, have you considered my servant Job? And in the end, what's the instruction to Satan? Job doesn't love God simply because of the things that God gives him. Job, even through that suffering, comes forth and demonstrates he'll worship God even when they're all taken away. That's instructive for the angelic company. It's hard to believe that you and I could be on a stage before angelic beings demonstrating something of the glory of God that he's worth trusting even when something very dear to you is taken. And that's why finally this response glorifies God, makes him big. There's nobody else to run to, nothing else worth trusting, no one else worth going to. Times of suffering can be times of strengthening your faith and revealing a true faith. We learn this from the New Testament in the book of James, in the book of 1 Peter. They talk about trials and suffering, and they say that those sufferings are actually to reveal the genuineness of your faith. They're like putting metal in a fire to remove its dross so that the true elements rise to the top. It's in the crucible of suffering that God refines our confidence in Him, sharpens our focus on Him. So may God help us when we suffer, and inevitably we have and we will 
by God's grace, may we have this kind of mature response. And testify with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be his name. Let's pray.